Welcome to another episode of Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I'm your host. It's great to be with you here today with uh, my good friend, James Wood, not James Woods. Uh, he is now officially a doctor. Is that right, James? Are you a doctor now? Yep, yep. I uh, completed last year and, and uh, convocated, so all the reverend doctor, if you want to be technical. Oh, wow. Do you uh, put that when you fly? Do you put reverend doctor as your prefixes on your uh, ticket? No, I try not to put those things uh, anywhere if I don't have to. But <laughs> I tell you this: uh, maybe this is now we're now we're getting way off track. But uh, I was a co-pastor with a, a pastor. I, I'm trying to not give any markers because uh, this is funny. He's a friend, but this is a funny story. He he actually ministered in the South at one point, uh, and then came to Austin to minister with me. Uh, and uh, he told me a story about when he was in Austin. One of it, he got pulled over first couple months uh he was there by a police officer and uh he tried an old trick uh and i had to uh, tell him that this doesn't work in post-christian austin but he uh the police he tried to hand his police officer his license and registration he's like oh i'm sorry officer uh it, it doesn't say reverend on there uh and the police officer said uh i'll make sure to write reverend on your ticket then uh, sir uh, i was like dude you cannot cannot do that in Austin. So uh, anyway, that's funny. That's great. Well, that's actually a good segue anyways, because you're, you're, are you still with, uh, with the PCA? That's, that yep. was one question I had right off the bat. Are you an ordained minister in the PCA while you're a professor at Redeemer? Is that, is that correct? That is correct. I'm a teaching elder, uh, and I've retained my ordination status here up in Canada. Uh, I had to transfer. That's how you do it in PCA. Uh, and, I was able to retain it because they allow they make an allowance for theology professors, and uh, yeah, and now I'm also on, like serving on committees and things like that. So yeah, still still active, uh, and I do you know side note I think it's been fun as a professor to um, I think the students know that about me, and and so it, this this year's been a lot of fun. I've had a lot more students kind of come reach out to me to for pastoral conversations, which I really enjoyed that because I kind of missed that. Uh, and so I, I really enjoy the, the space that I inhabit now as a professor and pastor. So that's excellent. Um, one of the things that, that we share kind of in common is we both come from kind of a, um, you know, neo Calvinist stream. And, uh, you know, for my listeners, I want to hear James's take on that a little bit, but just to provide some context, I did not know I was in that. I was just in those waters with Acts 29 and, all these other thinkers in the, what they call the young wrestlers performed. And I, it was kind of like all of a sudden there was critiques of it. And I was like, what's happening. I don't know what's happening right now. I remember getting a, winning a giveaway with back in the day, there was a blog called the resurgence and I got a Kuiper book for it. And I was like, this is amazing. And I know it has something to do with Kuiper. There's been recent literature about neo-Calvinism. Um, but I think it stems from Kuiper. And that's what we're going to talk about today is Kuiper, uh, his context in the Netherlands and an article you wrote with Ad Fontes. But uh, how self-aware were you, James, back in the day when you're pastoring in Austin of kind of the broader movement and the broader ties to Kuiper and Neo-Calvinism back then? Yeah. Yeah. So I became a Christian in college, which I think I've shared on your last podcast, so I won't re recount that. But um, immediately, and I'm not going to talk about this person a lot, but he's part of it. Immediately, I was influenced by Tim Keller. That's all I will say about that. Um, uh, but he's he's like a third generation neo-Calvinist, you could say, um, very influenced by Kuiper. And then increasingly, he was influenced by Bob Inc. a lot more and later in his life. But 
uh, like um, figures uh, like Schaefer and others. Those are also in the Cal- uh, neo-Calvinist stream. Um, but I, I would say pretty early on, uh, that's the, the kind of inflection of the Reformed faith that I stepped into. And I think I was pretty self-aware that uh, I, I do. And I still I agree with a lot of neo-Calvinism. So I critique a little bit here in the article we'll talk about. I've critiqued. Um, other aspects in an essay for first things of the new primer on neo-Calvinism. Um, but a lot of it I agree with, particularly, uh, and even still. And so I'll, I'll talk about the transformationalism. That's the part we'll have to get to, uh, that I'll, I'll, but I'll sideline that for a second. I, I, but it's related to the first point is I think one of the things I really appreciate about the neo-Calvinist is this kind of holistic posture. It, it, it's, it, it's a strong commitment to holism in all sorts of ways, how you read scripture, how you see nature and grace relation, church and politics, all of these things. It's a push against dualism and all sorts of dualisms. And I still really gravitate towards that. Originally, my dissertation was actually going to be comparing Delubach, who my dissertation was on, uh, with Kuiper as kind of two troublemakers on nature and grace was the original title that I had for it, because they do both kind of offer kind of creative uh, construals of the nature grace relation in the kind of, uh, you know, uh, early, ni- early 20th century. Um, Kuiper even before that, Kuiper is a little bit before Dulebach's time, but they're both kind of trying to resist any sort of like dualisms or separated theology or thing like that. And, and trying to bring the, the faith to bear upon the public world. Hudemacher, as we'll talk about in a minute, thinks he, Kuiper had some kind of significant flaws in the way he did that, that would undermine his project. But but I appreciate that intention. Uh, and I do really, and I still really um, share the passion for, like, if you think about Bevington's quadrilateral, like, which is, a, you know, an imperfect kind of uh, device to summarize evangelicalism, but it's, it is kind of helpful for just conversations as a kind of lens or heuristic. The activism, you know, I, I think there's something about that in Kuyperianism that I still gravitate to that, that Christian, you know, reformed Christians in the Kuyperian strain, uh, are they concerned to they have a concern to live out their faith, uh, uh, allow it to bear upon the public sphere, to, to not privatize it. And so I still really share that. Uh, I mean, I have critiques of Kuiper that we'll look, talk to you about one of them already, even before we get into the, maybe the essays. You know, I, as I started to investigate him more, uh, one of the things that I was concerned about is, is his view of the church. But uh, I guess I'll sideline that now. But yeah, I mean, I, I was pretty aware. And now I work at a Kuyperian school, a neo-Calvinist school, which I'm very happy to be there again, because some of the base commitments I still very much share. Uh, now I would uh, try to propose alternative ways to uh, faithfully live those out and, and apply those. But um, yeah, I still, yeah, influenced by Keller and then transformationalist, I, I, I still uh, share those things. That's great. And then, you know, you've you've connected Schaefer there seems to be a gap for me in the lineage with neo-Calvinism because I don't know when neo-Calvinism mm-hmm. became a moniker uh, for mm-hmm. this broader movement. And I don't, when, I don't know when Kuyperianism became, you know, at what point does a man's last name become a whole movement? Uh, so I don't, I, I'm unclear on maybe yeah. how it, you know, came about in the early, especially where we are now, the 2000s, 2010s, as a movement, going back to Schaefer, I, I can make that connection. But mm-hmm. how did Kuiper's influence s- cross the pond and become a broader uh, kind of hmm. movement with universities like your, your, the one you're at? Uh, you can kind of yeah. uh, adopting that as their approach. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's I, this isn't my area of expertise. So I'll just give you kind of the broad contours of what I know. Um, uh, and um, yeah, so 
uh, the, the term. So I, I would, I would, I would advise if people want to know some more of the origins and things like this, I, I do think the little book by uh, Brock and Sutanto that I reviewed for first things is pretty helpful um, on that front. And, um, and they also try to expand beyond Kuiper as well. Like it isn't just Kuiper, but it does begin there. Um, but uh, Kuiper definitely is at the genesis of it. Um, and the term itself, uh, as they, I didn't know this, they, I was instructed from their book. It was largely originally a pejorative term. Uh, and so it, it's like these similar, like Christ, the word Christian was right in the, in the book of Acts. And then and now we know like debates about like the term Christian nationalist originally was a pejorative. Can people appropriate it? You know, uh, same thing with, with neo-Calvinism. Uh, but it does reflect, I mean, I, I do think Kuiper and his colleague, you know, Herman Bobink did try to uh, bridge kind of reformed confessionalism, reformed orthodoxy with a concern for the modern world. And so that's why the neo part of it. So they really took, took seriously the, ta the, the burden of, of uh, translating those convictions to the modern world and facing up to the real challenges. I mean, one of the things that's most impressive about Caper to me is basically he bootstrapped Catholic social tradition teaching for Protestants. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously we had Protestants talking about social issues before, uh, but we don't have as, as neatly as the kind of emerging over the last, you know, hundred and, 40 years of Catholic social teaching that's emerged as a coherent tradition. We can debate whether or not how coherent it is, whether there's tensions, or, that's fine, but they've got kind of key documents they can turn back to. They've got key terms that they can apply and appeal to. Well, Kuiper kind of bootstrapped that himself. He's like, all right. I mean, they both are addressing the emergence of like Leo the 13th. That's kind of the genesis of the Catholic social tradition uh, uh, with rerum novarum and, and things like that. And then around the same time, Kuiper is just like, okay, like I'm, I have to address the social question as well. All these problems that emerge out of like the industrial revolution and the, the rapid social changes. So that, that's kind of the early genesis. How does it get into North America? I mean, largely probably just because of Dutch immigrants. I mean, there's, and one of the fascinating things being here, just the, the tight knitness of the, the, the Dutch reformed communities, uh, especially here at Redeemer, where I am in Ancaster, Ontario, up in this area and is, um, uh, they're one of the beautiful things about the Dutch reform tradition is they punch above their weight in the public sphere. Largely, I think largely because of their commitment to institution building. Uh, it's a, it's a tradition that is a strong com commitment to institution building. And so, uh, and so I think they've built, came over here, built a lot of tradition, the institutions inspired by Kuiper and his like, uh, ambitiousness, um, uh, but yeah, then from Kuiper and Bavik in their era, then how does it, you know, before Schaefer and stuff, I mean, yeah, you have like a lot of different figures uh, that I'm less aware of. Uh, but, you know, uh, you even have critics of Kuiper, not just Hudemacher, which we'll look at around his time, but you had someone like Klaas Skilder was someone involved in the neo-Calvinist circles in that tradition, but also critical of some aspects of Kuiper's thought, but largely committed to a similar vision. Um and then, uh, but even before Kuiper, I forgot to say, you also have um, uh, Grand von Prinster was an, inf was an inspiration for Kuiper who helped start the anti-revolutionary political party. And so he was already someone helping Kuiper think about like resisting modern trends. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how much to say about the, I mean, just these, the churches in the, in, the, in the schools that were built in North America probably trans. And then Kuiper famously also himself came over to North America and delivered the Stone Lectures, which most people's first introduction to Kuiper are his lectures on Calvinism, which were at Princeton, the Stone Lectures, at the beginning yeah. of the 20th century. And so that that kind of boosted his fame in North America. And that, those, th that was the text that was translated 
and disseminated for the longest period until the Acton Institute recently in, Lex, in partnership with Lexham Press. You know, I'm not getting paid to endorse this, but then they uh, maybe they'll send me some free stuff uh, upon hearing this. But they they uh, launched a big uh, uh, translation and uh, publication project of all of his Kuiper's works in public theology that kind of also around the same time that um, the, the Bavink uh, dogmatics were being translated now, a lot of Bavink work. So now we're really in a Kuiperian moment. Uh, or a neo-Calvinist moment, uh, a, a kind of a new stage of it. There's a lot of energy among young scholars. Um, but I guess probably you would also say, uh, I think you mentioned some friends earlier. I, I also think the Reconstructionists in the late 80s and 90s were really influenced by Kuiper. Uh, I, I'm less familiar with that world because I became a Christian in 2003 and I've never been in the Reconstructionist world, but I think that was another way that his ideas were popularized. So yeah, I can see that too. With uh, okay, so let's get to let's get to Kuiper a little bit. Understanding his historical context, one of the things that I've been fascinated by is his relationship with Bavink. I don't want to get into that on the air, but just to kind of situate the conversation, I think is uh, you've got Bavink, who's more of the kind of pure academic theologian, and you've got Kuiper kind of being a political figure, transformationalist, uh, starting institutions. The institution I'm getting my PhD at now. Mm-hmm. For University of Amsterdam. And, um, and so it's an interesting, anytime we look at church history, I really enjoy seeing the different personalities and way God uses uh, figures. You know, you can look back at John Owen and John Bunyan, two very different uh, classes of people uh, during the time of the Puritans, and you can look at how God used them. And so I always enjoy hearing about the different clashes, not just in temperament, personality, convictions, but also how it played out politically and socially. And so you introduced uh, via Ad Fontes this figure I had never heard of, who to mocker, who to maker. Um, uh, how, how do we say his name, James? Yeah, Philippus Chicobus Hudemacher. Uh, none of it rolls Hudemacher. off the tongue. Yeah. But. <laughs> and so give me some, or give our listeners maybe some context as to what Kuiper was trying to do uh, mm. in, in, during that time, which then we can talk about who to mocker, who to maker. Uh, to to kind of understand his critiques of Kuiper. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were both waging a war on two fronts, really, church and, and politics. And so, as I already mentioned, Kuiper's in, being influenced by Grand von Prudster uh, and the anti-revolutionary party. And uh, yeah, so a resistance to kind of what we would call now liberalism, which is interesting. I think Kuiper has a very ambitious, ambiguous or ambivalent relationship to liberalism. Um, but uh, a resistance to kind of this revolutionary fervor in late 19th century politics that tried to, you know, privatize religion and push it to the private sphere and, and things like this, things that we're still debating and dealing with now. I think um, that's why I think a lot of people were drawn to Kuiper also, because he was facing that head on and, and kind of trying to ke- come up with some creative solutions Um uh, before I get to his solutions, the other front would be um, uh, uh, his church battles. And so they were also battling the kind of what they call the lax Volkskirk, the uh, kind of a very Kierkegaardian critique, right? Like a church that's established um, a Christendom situation, right? Can lead to kind of a nominalistic faith, dead, uh, dead faith, you know, uh, um, uh, because it has too much public privilege and, and they don't have a strong enough like antithesis to the world and things like this. And so he and Hudemacher were both concerned about that. Um, and they, just, they had different 
proposals to how to solve that. Kuiper's uh, big proposal was the idea of a free church and a free state to try, kind of address both of that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, his most famous quote before I even get to that, right, is every, everybody talks, you know, quotes all the time. Uh, there's not a single square inch under all of creation over which Christ does not proclaim mine. And so it's obviously he's trying to tease out the public implications of Christ's lordship. Um, but he kind of does it in a very modern liberal way. Um, you kind of go in inspired by, you could almost be a, just a Rawlsian Kyperian. You go in inspired by your comprehensive, comprehensive visions, but we have to, you know, work on an equal playing field with everybody else and kind of do it through the democratic procedures and, uh, and, and you can never win, <laughs> but he doesn't necessarily say that, but it's kind of one of the implications is, uh, because equal rights for all would be a phrase that he actually appropriates explicitly. Uh, and, uh, there's all sorts of different types of rights. So what I'm proposing, what Hudemacher is proposing is not that you start like stripping people of like the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or something like this, but like the rights for institutional bodies, the, like all, all these different relationships, what type of rights are we talking about? And so, uh, so he he would promote equal rights for all. So kind of this kind of Rawlsian, you know, or proto Rawlsian uh, before Rawls view, and the free church and the free state, kind of um, very Baptistic. You know, you're uh, so this might be a reason why you're even. I think Baptists are very drawn to Kuiper uh, because it, that that pr proposal sounds like right. It frees up the church to be the church and frees the state to be the state. And but the big question is like, actually, are there problems involved? Uh, that result from that, um, uh, that you're being, uh, naive to. Um, okay. So that, yeah, that, that, that's Kuiper, uh, a little bit. I don't, I haven't, I don't know what specific questions you had about Hudemacher, but I, yeah, I don't, I've talked a while now. So did I get what you're asking or? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So for, just for the listeners, I mean, he, he became the prime minister. He yeah. started a university. He was founding things. Yep. He was doing yep. things in the Netherlands in the late yeah. 19th century. Yeah, I, could, I, could, I could share a few points of that, right? So he yeah, he yeah. started up the Free University in 1880 and Hudemacher joined him. He was one of the original uh, faculty there and, and a pre prominent faculty member. When uh, the news reports came to the United to North America about this university, Hudemacher was, was the figure actually promoted the most as kind of the well-known uh, person that uh, people were looking forward to uh, his role there. And so, um, so he started 1880, the Free University, uh, you know, trying to submit all of the disciplines to the Lordship of Jesus. So, um, so that's great. Uh, and uh, and then uh, eventually, he, Kuiper um, uh, uh, led the charge for an exodus from his denomination, from the the National Church, what's called the Dolianti, in 1887. I think that happened. Uh, uh, and so they split. So kind of a, an ecclesiastical split that he led the charge for because uh, they didn't uh, – he was dissatisfied with the direction of the church and they didn't respond well to what he was doing. Uh, and then, yeah, and then he became prime minister in 1901 and 1905, I believe, were the years of his being prime minister. And that was very, uh, very interesting, very hotly contested, but obviously a, a great success uh, politically. Uh, yeah, so those are three big key dates for him. Yeah, so with Hudemacher coming in, I'm going to get it right before the end of the episode, I swear. Um, <laughs> coming in, he's the professor there. What all of a sudden, you, you know, you br you bring to light, uh, you might call it resourcement, uh, you bring to light this episode, this critique of Kuiper's approach. So 
walk kind of our listeners through, and I'm going to put a link to the article for the listeners so they can go read it. But just, you know, just as a brief intro, what what are the major critiques that he has uh, regarding Kuiper's approach to matters? Yeah. Yeah. It, it all started to come to head. So he's pretty excited to join Kuiper originally. Uh, this vision of submitting all the disciplines to Christ, all knowledge to Christ. And then he started to see that there were some real tensions between the two and the way they were viewing that. One is um, uh, he didn't like that Kuiper um, was not seeking to have the national church receive its students for ordin- as ordination candidates. And so he already started to see like, oh, Kuiper's not really trying to, first of all, revive the national church, which was something that Hudemacher was very passionate about. Hudemacher, interestingly, was born in, a, in another version of the separation from the national church. He was born in a separated sect, sect uh, you could say, and then eventually moved back into the national church. Um, and so he, he increasingly became convicted that we have, if we want to restore the place of Christ in our nation, then actually a big part of that is going to be a national church and reviving that. And so, uh, and he, he saw that there was some tension that Kuiper was not seeing things exactly the same way. So that was already an early tension. And then once Kuiper led the split, um, uh, in 1887, uh, he knew that they were at a crossroads and eventually Hudemacher was pushed out, uh, from the school, but also there's a couple other points there. He, uh, um, he also just rejected, um, the idea of neutrality, public neutrality, as I mentioned earlier, but also he saw neutrality implicit actually in the idea of a Christian private, a Christian separate school like this. He actually, he actually in one, at one point says the, um, the Christian school is the, the idol, uh, of, 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 of our day. Uh, and what oh, he's wow. saying there is because, yeah, he's and his argument is because you've, by pursuing these independent schools, you're actually, his argument is you're abandoning the, the pursuit of, of, of ordering public institutions to the truth. And so you can disagree with them that you could make a strategic prudential argument that this is actually the most effective way to do it, but that was his argument. Um, so there's that, but then also he, got, he was really critical um, of of Kuiper's uh, Kuiper and Bavink and a few others were involved in writing a gravamon, and that's how you do kind of constitutional confessional changes in in their tradition uh, in 1896 to the confession. So the big debates over his his uh, alteration to Article 36 was on the relationship between the civil the civil magistrate the, the civil magistrate's duties, its relationship to Christ and the church. And so uh, they sought to, uh, Kuiper and others sought to revise that uh, to strip away the language of like, you know, the magistrate is, is, is responsible to, you know, um, purge out idolatry and heresy and, and things like that and to, and to promote Christ's rule and all, the, all those things. So, right, I mean, the Presbyterians in America already did that a, a long time before that. Uh, but this also really bothered Hudemacher as well. And he thought that this was... Um, uh, that that was emblematic of some some issues in his thought, and he he uh, didn't think he had sufficient justification for that. Um, so yeah, those are some of the yeah. But he just thought like, look, I mean, if you if you do this, uh, if you do these things, the uh, changing Article Thirty Six, you have private institutions, and you're not actually trying to revive the national church, then what's what's going to ultimately happen is you're basically reducing the church to a private institution, private association of people. You lose national unity and you lose the pursuit of trying to order public institutions to the truth. 
um, and you just enshrine popular will and kind of the democratic processes, which uh, uh, popular sovereignty instead of submission of all things to Christ. It's, it's like, look, you're actually not you're you're actually not um, living faithfully to the values that you espouse. Uh, this is actually practically functionally undermining those values, the the the, the paths you're taking. So. Yeah, quick rabbit trail on that. Um, I recently read uh, Althusius's Politica, which mm-hmm. is actually very readable. You can find it online. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. And as a Baptist, I was kind of asking a bunch of Presbyterians, should I not like this? I don't understand. Like I, I, this vision that Althusius has, which he's a, I think two, 300 years before Kuiper, um, you know, he's writing to, uh, to churches in Germany, Netherlands, that region. So I guess the question I'm asking is, was Kuiper and were these other figures being in that geographic region, were they conversant with Althusius to your knowledge at all? Do they have any, I mean, was that article 36 derived from Althusius? Is there any indication there? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I've read Althusius, but I don't know uh, how much Kuiper conversed with Althusius. Um, uh, and the Belgian confession was not, uh, it, it was written before Althusius. Um, okay. I'm pretty sure. I can't remember the exact dates of Althusius's life. Uh, Belgian confession is one of the earliest reform confessions, very early. Uh, and so it's just classical Protestant kind of two kingdoms theology on these things. Um, uh, and that's one of the things that Hudemacher argues with Kuiper is like, look, you're, you're actually a lot of your arguments, you're conflating categories, you're confusing categories. You're actually not seeing the logic behind these things. Uh, the confession does not conflate church and nation at all. Um, it doesn't rule out uh, freedom of conscience, but it makes distinction between freedom of conscience and, and full pr- freedom of, pr- of, of expression, which, by the way, is inevitable. Uh, no society has complete freedom of expression of anything. And so and that's one of the things that Hudemacher argues against him. He's like, look, the confession and classical reform thinking on this was not trying to coerce conscience. First of all, it's impossible and nobody advocated for it. Uh, but it was it was trying to rule out and trying to uh, curb uh, obstreperous heretics and and things like this who were undermining civil order. They were attacking the foundations of civil order. Uh, it's not so. It's not just wrong think. You know, you have wrong think over here. It's not that. Uh, it's like you know, and actually, you know, I'm not going to talk about this much. But Hudemacher actually has some uh, excursies on the Servetus affair and how people kind of actually don't know the details of what was going on there. Um, you can disagree with that. That's fine. But he actually tries to make sure. a case for this is actually someone who is extremely civilly disruptive, uh, not just uh, theologically wrong. And so and he so Hudemacher just thinks that Kuiper is just confusing all these categories. And he even like makes a really interesting case about this is in, I think, my article in one of the lengthy footnotes, right, is um, how even in the Reformed confessions uh, and Reformed theology, classical Reformed theology, they, they even recognized a distinction between the, the civil body and the ecclesiastical body, even in the Old Testament, uh, and they give he gives a, 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 examples of how that was manifest. So it's like, look, there's just all sorts of kind of category errors that Kuiper's making, and also so the freedom of expression, freedom of of, of belief. And it was also he doesn't think that Kuiper sufficiently accounts for the distinction between a, a public religion that's like promoted and protected by the state as kind of the center of its national unity or public virtue or whatever. So you can still do that and tolerate dissidents. It's possible to still do that. Um, and Hudemacher's like, this is classical reform theology. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you try to stamp out everybody who disagrees. 
or that everybody has to be a part of the national church. Uh, so, I mean, and I, I think now as we start to think about like the battles we're facing today, I think it's become much more easy to concede some of those core arguments. Like you're going to have a national religion. You're going to have speech that's protected and speech that's prohibited. Uh, And I think actually classical reform theology provides the the sufficient categories to delineate like where the lines are on that. Um, And and to, uh, yeah. Uh, And so still, to still provide freedom of, of belief um, and a a certain form of plurality, uh, but not pluralism. And so I, I do think there's a big difference between recognizing religious plurality, which everybody throughout history has recognized. I, I, I think it's just naive that often modern theologians think like, oh, it wasn't until the last two centuries where we recognized plurality. Like plurality was always <laughs> a part of life. Uh, but it's different in the modern world is that we've moved from that descriptive uh, indicator to a more prescriptive model of pluralism as an ideology, which uh, effectively cashes out and you can't actually um, discriminate between religions. You can't promote a certain religion, or at least you can't do it in an explicit fashion. It will be done inevitably. I actually think making the, the matter more explicit uh, is, is um, uh, just a, a better path because uh, it allows it to be more easily critiqued and, uh, and to know where the lines are. Uh, what we live in now, right, is we have public religion. It's ever shifting uh, and it, it makes life actually extremely precarious for lots of people. Uh, and so I think actually being more explicit about it uh, would be better. Anyway, so that's a lot of ranting on that. No, it's fine. Um, with Kuiper, you know, it, it, it's a bit confusing as a as a kind of lay person to uh, to all of this. Is like he promotes this vision of uh, Christ's lordship over everything. You know, there's not one square inch of creation which over which Christ does not claim mine. And so he's promoting these what seem like great. Christ is Lord type, you know, declarations. Yep. And yet on the other hand, what Hudemacher is critiquing him of is actually diminishing the Lordship of Christ and removing mm-hmm. um, a, a very Protestant approach to promoting Christ's Lordship. How did Kuiper respond to all of this? Did, is that, <laughs> it, it seems like there's a disconnect there. Yeah. How would you identify the disconnect? Did Kuiper identify the disconnect? Because it doesn't really make sense how he couldn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of threads there that you could tease out. One of them would be Kuiper actually, or Hudemacher actually challenges him by distinguishing their positions as like what Kuiper's basically, what Hudemacher is basically promoting is a Christian nation or a Christian state. And Kuiper's advocating for a neutral state that might at some point be run by Christians. Um, mm. And there's a distinction there. Um because what Hudemacher is passionate about is the public institutions being ordered to the truth themselves, not just the individuals. And so that's a big distinction. It doesn't mean that everybody involved has to be Christian, but it means sure. like, you know, like one of my kids might ultimately not be Christian, but like, we're still going to order our home that way. Uh, my school at Redeemer, you know, is a Christian school. Uh, and so we pray, we have songs, we have chapel, we, we, talk about Jesus and the Bible in every class. Does every person in the school believe? Maybe not. Um, but uh, we're still going to order it that way uh, as if it's true. Uh, otherwise you're already, you're kind of conceding that it might not be. Uh, uh, and you're still leaving up the question. I mean, which, uh, there's an essay I wrote about Jody or Cody Cooper and Jay Buckley Dyer's book on the Protestant of foundings of or Christian founding of America 
It's a great new book by Cambridge Press. And uh, but it's one of the things I, I pose to their book at the end is that it seems like they're willing to leave open the questions about ultimate truth, but not per- permitting the answers to be resolved at any point. And that's one of the things that, you know, is it possible to win the conversation? Is it possible to uh, uh, not? That doesn't mean that everybody is convinced, but uh, we think the, the, the most likely truth is this. Um, by the way, we did that during COVID uh, all, all sorts of ways. Not everybody was convinced uh, about COVID policies uh, and yet public institutions were ordered to the, to a certain vision. It's inevitable. And so I think what Hudemarker wants to pro, 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 pro suggest is, could it be Christian? Um, and even ask like, look, he's like, look, this, you might not be, con- yeah, it, it, the path to this is very complicated. He, he's not naive about it, but he, he proposes at one point, I think I have in the essays, like, do you even want it? Would it even be something you would want if, if we had more robust recognition of Jesus in every, in, in our public institutions, would that be even something you desire? And he thinks, I think that most people would still say no. He, and he wants to tease that out. Like, I actually think there's something deficient in your theology. If you can't confidently say yes to that. Right. Yeah. So with, with Kuiper kind of uh, advocating for these ideas, um, you can see the downstream effects of that. Uh, I saw it like uh, the people that come to mind as we're talking are like figures like Russell Moore today, or, um, or people who are afraid of nominalism and hypocrisy. And so you've got Kuiper back then trying to deinstitutionalize the church in order to make the church holy, theoretically, and make it so that it's not kind of a dead religion in his nation. Um, and so he promotes this vision of free church and a free state. Um, and, and does that come from that Article 36 decision where basically he separates the two completely? And the state no longer has a role to play in the formation of people uh, and pointing them to the to the truth of Christ. Yeah, I, you know, again, because my research on this was largely Hudemacher, so I don't. I, I mean, I've read a lot of Kuiper, but I, I I'll be hesitant to speak too confidently about uh, his views entirely. Um, and I flagged that even in the essay. Like, I I, I think it's. Up for, gra- up for debate whether or not Hudemacher accurately represents Kuiper, but that wasn't the point of my essay. Um, but Kuiper's views on some of these matters of a more strong distinction didn't emerge in 1896 uh, with the gravamen that he proposed, but it did result in that. And so I think that's an expression of his convictions. I don't know where originally, you know, Kuiper's a very fascinating figure because he he can kind of say a lot of different things and it can sound like he's that's actually why it's really hard to systematize from Kuiper. That's why a lot of people, that's why Neo-Calvinists tend to go to Bavink, right? It's like, he's much more systematic thinker and there's a coherence in his thinking. And it's, and it's just not, it's not so obvious in Kuiper. He can kind of speak out of both sides of his mouth, depending on the audience he's talking to, because he's a politician for good and for bad. I mean, he was effective in certain ways. And so we yeah. don't disparage him for that, but, but it does make it difficult to figure out like the genesis of his ideas and things like this and, and where he ultimately lands. And, um, so, uh, but yeah, he does ultimately end up in kind of a Baptistic view of church and state. Uh, I don't know if you would say that the state has no role in promoting the truth. I just think he'd be very, very, very cautious. Um, and I, and Hudemacher, so I'll just limit it now more to Hudemacher's critique, is he really critiques how this cashes out in what he calls this common grace politics and things like this, which is kind of a separate, this is what Dulubach would call like a separated, separated theology. Um, that like that it, it's it's a radicalized kind of two radicalized 2k understanding right like that the state the magistrate um 
he, he really critiques Kuiper here in a rhetorically effective way. He says, you know, you call the magistrate Lord, the Lord's servant, but you effectively ruled out the Lord's servant knowing the Lord's will. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and he thinks like, look, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll read these quotes, just a couple of quotes here. I think are really helpful. He says, um, uh, oh, where is it? Um, it's really good. Uh, oh man, I can't find it anyway. But he says like, look, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, the, the church, uh, the, or the, what scripture, how scripture relates to the magistrate's duties is it helps scripture is helps illuminate nature. That's a very classical reformed understanding. And so it helps uh, natural institutions do their natural duties. They know them more, uh, more clearly and they can perform them more effectively. So Hudemacher is not trying to impose ecclesiastical rule over society, but he's, the, the church is, is tasked with providing more authoritative interpretation of the word that helps illuminate nature so the magistrate can fulfill their natural duties. Uh, and so, and he thinks Kuiper has, has ruled that out from the outset. And now the, the magistrate is kind of walking in the dark, or at least the very obscure light of nature by itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, it's fascinating. And it kind of gets me, I was wondering if we could talk about, because I'm going to listen, I listened to the Civitas podcast. I'm, I'm curious about kind of this, uh, I would call it niche and that's not meant to be disparaging. Uh, kind of this this word ecclesiocentrism, where we're not trying to say the church governs the state, but we're trying to propose something unique. And so it would help me greatly to understand, give me <laughs> the pitch, give me the kind of like on ecclesiocentrism. What is the argument there? And, I, and I've, I've asked you about yeah. this before, because oftentimes when yeah. I'm listening to you and Lightheart and a lot of these figures talk, I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm the man grasping in the dark. I don't understand where the, where is the antithesis? Where's the distinctive between, uh, you know, whether it's Kuyperianism or Christian nationalism or all this stuff, how does ecclesiocentrism situate the Lordship yeah. of Christ and honor kind of our Protestant heritage with the two kingdoms approach? Yeah. Let me read. I found the section, which might lead into that. Um, Okay. Uh, yeah, I found this little section from my essay, and I can't remember if it was in the original one or not, but uh, or the one that's published because there's another more more larger version that's hopefully going to be published in academic journals soon. But yeah, so Hudemacher argued that Kuiper's common grace politics, which leaves the civil magistrate only with general revelation, is analogous to errors in Anabaptist and Roman Catholic political theology. Kuiper reasoned that the civil government does not need revealed religion and only has natural knowledge of God. Hudemacher explained that the classical reform view is that the government can learn from the word. To deny this is to reject the perspicuity of scripture. To withhold the light of the word from civil rulers is to repeat the error of Rome by withholding the word from the people. Yes, to understand the word in its spiritual sense, one needs the Holy Spirit. But the word helps all, uh, helps all more clearly perceive matters pertaining to natural life. From scripture, one's, natural, one's knowledge of nature is illuminated. Scripture is the light by which persons see things rightly. Scripture does not replace nature, but offers us the keys to unravel it. This source of clarifying knowledge is available to civil rulers, and one of the elements that is missing in Kuiper's framework related to this is a thick notion of the church and its public role, to which I'll return. And so then when I go to, uh, down the road, about summarizing Hudemacher's views, which is one of the reasons why I was kind of getting in your question, and one of the reasons I was so drawn to him is because I largely agree with a lot of the classical two kingdoms approach, um, uh, but I think a lot of its contemporary advocates uh, 
do really neglect to talk about the church, which by the way, Peter and I talk about this all the time. Like you just go study kind of medieval political philosophy in the, in the great debates in the West. It is really fascinating how it's a constant ongoing conversation, a live debate, tense and tumultuous about the relationship between church and temporal power. And I think a lot of my friends who I very much appreciate and agree with in a lot of ways who talk about these things act as if it's so obvious and easy and it's not complicated and that the church, uh, isn't, uh, a very unique social body in the world that can in some ways reshape our loyalties. Uh, and, and so I, that's something that, you know, I'm influenced by a lot of the kind of church centered people, but I'm not Anabaptist and neither is Hudemacher. So Hudemacher kind of provides some resources to say, what is this very significant role that the church plays um, that should really calibrate our loyalties and our vision? So what, we, or what Peter and I are trying to do is not exactly what Hauerwas says, but this, this is a good challenge. I think that Hauerwas has in a lot of his writings, which is when you think of social problems, you should at least first start thinking about church because the church is God's social gift to the world. And so you don't end, it's not the only thing you say, but I do think a lot of people don't even say that. They don't even talk about, okay, how does the, they just immediately go to legislation. And I'm, I'm for legislation. I'm for ordering public institutions to the truth. Uh, but I think if you neglect that other step, you'll kind of miss out some significant things God's doing in the world and actually how you can be really creative uh, in your proposed uh, vision. So anyway, but here, here's, here's who to mark. Let me give you these quotes and we'll kind of see if this addresses some of these things. Um, yeah, Hudemacher, what a fascinating challenge he makes to Kuiper is Kuiper's all about organism. It's a big, the holism, the connections between things, the rejection of dualism. One of the things that Hudemacher says is there's a lack actually of the organism of the nation in Kuiper. Uh, and, and he actually thinks that the church plays a role in facilitating that. And uh, Hudemacher wanted organic national cultural unity with the church of the word at the center. To express this, Hudemacher provides a rich metaphor of the church as the heart of the civil body. Uh, and so it, it animates, it, it enlivens, but also, so I'm not going to read the long quotes, but also he's going to say is like, he wants to, he wants the church as a united public witness to illuminate the state to fulfill its own duties. And so like, so, and I think we could just think about this practically, right? Like we care about abortion. We care about gender issues. Like, okay. Can the, can the state figure these out on its own? Maybe. So that's a bigger like theoretical question, but is it, it's not. And one of the reasons why uh, that's even more easily facilitated, that division, that confusion, is because the church isn't united. So Kuiper or Hudemacher says, like, he wants a united public witness to clarify some of those, those matters. Where, what does supernatural revelation illuminate nature uh, so that the more supernatural social body, the church, can inform and enlighten the natural body, the state? And so uh, I just – it doesn't mean the state – the church rules over the state. No, it's illuminating it to fulfill its natural duties. Uh, and so it's not ruling over it, but I, I, again, I think our friends do, I, that would be something I, it's not where we're not, I'm not viewing my project as antithetical to theirs. I, I view our thing as providing another angle on maybe a missing element. Uh, and so like, you yeah. know, if you listen to our, our podcast, we're not, we don't really, I mean, we critique the integralist probably more than anybody, but, uh, our friends who are doing the 2k Christian nationalism stuff. It's, it's not necessarily, that's not exactly how our project is situated to reject that. It's more like, how does it provide a, a, a resource that might be uh, lacking sometimes in those conversations? No, that makes sense. Cause one thing I've noticed in the conversation is oftentimes it seems like the church is relegated and I will be honest, 
you know, being a church planner, being a pastor, I, I feel there's a there's a tension, and I don't know that that tension needs to be resolved. It's not a problem necessarily, like you said. These are conversations that go back centuries, but the tension is this: on the one hand, uh, whether you want to use Hierawas or Kuiper, you've got the church is kind of a social agent for social change, for social good, which is what we planted uh, kind of with that vision. So you had a lot of church plants doing art galleries and doing kind of social experiments in terms of like, how are we engaging culture? Big phrase, you know? So that's one side. The other side seems to be the church's job is word and sacrament. You know, that's what they steward. They are, they are keepers of that kingdom. They have a certain duty to play, which is very Protestant to kingdom in my mind, at least as I understand it. And so I don't think those have to be opposed, yeah. but it does seem to be a real tension where, where guys like yeah. me who come out of a more neo-Calvinist, Kuyperian, that's actually very exhausting as a pastor because you get a lot of congregants who come in with that preloaded expectation because they've been reading these big figures that are Kuyperian. They've been reading the Gospel Coalition, other stuff. And they're like, they come in and they're like, well, where's your outreach to the homeless? And I'm like, I don't, I mean, we're a church of 150. I don't know. I don't have a, a you know, a huge ministry of that, or, or where's the church's uh, counseling? I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. I can provide you pastoral counseling. Uh, and so they expect so much of the church. And so the word and sacrament, the kind of historic two kingdom, like uh, I'm going to use partitioned, but that's maybe too pejorative where it's just limited and what it's able to do appeals to me just from a human capacity standpoint as a pastor, sure. where I can't do all of this stuff. Can you speak into that tension a little bit? Do yeah. you see that tension as well? Well, there's a lot of threads. I mean, you could, yeah, I mean, I would, one of the things I say in my own research outside of these like more public debates, one of the things I've told pastors is one of the things uh, I'm wanting to do is to provide a kind of a thick theological under, uh, explication of why I think what you are doing by leading the public worship, gathered worship, and c- corporate life of the people is the most important thing in the world. I believe that. So I'm not a dualist, uh, but I do believe that. Uh, you can be a prioritist and not a dualist. Um, uh, and so I am a prioritist. I think what the church does on Sunday is the most important thing happening in the world. Um, and uh, now, so, okay, so now there's that. So okay, now a co- co- couple questions. <laughs> if you appropriate like our view, this ecclesiocentric, do you think those liturgical practices are publicly significant. I do. Uh, do you think when, when Ambrose ex- dis- disciplined Theodosius from the sacrament, that was publicly significant? I do. Uh, I think it changed public policy, uh, but it was a, it was a, a churchly action. Uh, and so I think, think along those lines now expand on that, right? Like, uh, do I think, you know, when the early church forced slave masters and slave and, and slaves to be re- kiss at the table, uh, that that have public implications over the centuries. Yeah, I do. Uh, uh, you know, um, all these things. And so already starting to think about what, are, what, what what's public about that. Uh, how, and how does it rip? How is it? How is it self already public? And how does it rip out, ripple out in public ways? Because that's one thing. Uh, the other thing being when you say word and sacrament, if you think word, the word is just like preparing you for eternal life, you're being dumb. I mean, like, that's just not the truth. The word, right. uh, the Great Commission says, teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you. I'm, I have authority over all things. Uh, disciple all nations. If you're really teaching that and you're preaching the word, you're not just going to be talking about how you have internal conscience forgiveness. 
you're going to be right. talking about things that pertain to life. And so I, that kind of like strict dualism that I do see some of the more recent 2K advocates saying when they say it's just word and sacrament. I'm like, what are you talking about with the word? What do you think the word addresses? Like, sure. Uh, and so it addresses everything uh, because it's the logo, the, the logos explaining the logo of creation. Um, and also I love Delubach. Uh, so the word is worldly or the word wor world is, is wordy. I mean, it's, it's shaped, it's mm. held together by the word and it's illuminated by the word and it should be governed by the word. And Delubach also, even with the language of spiritual, uh, he's like, look, it, the church is a spiritual community and has a spiritual authority, but how do you understand what spiritual is? The spiritual touches everything. Uh, and right. so that, that means there's no domain uh, over which the church doesn't have concern. Um, so it just, I think it all gets more muddy. That's why I like, I think when some people try to make these lines too clean, I'm just like, I'm not convinced You're, you haven't convinced me yet that it's that clean. Sure. Um, and so now does the church need to go provide every social service? No. Um, but should some of the things that are social service, things that are tried to be answered by social services, can some of those things be found in the life can be answered by what is the church? I think actually, yes. So like, okay, give an example. Like the very first paper I ever wrote in seminary in an ethics class was on what can the average parishioner do to care for the homeless? Because you brought that, it made me think of it because you talked about the homeless. And I actually made a case that one of the best things you could do, and it just through a lot of research and actually engaging some homeless people for a period of six months, is that one of the best things you can do, and you have to be careful, prudential, safe, is to invite a homeless person to eat with you regu somewhat regularly, have a meal with them. Um, in your house, maybe if you're a man who's and they can do that in a safe way, but that effect that addresses a lot of the problems in a different way than just like either handing out money or like telling them to go to a certain social institution, you know, uh, anyway, so I, but, but then how can the church start in, empowering people to do that, in, inspiring them, providing resources, whatever. Uh, I think that that's just a way to be creative. Um, yeah. So that's a lot uh, there, but no, that's good. That, but I, to me, that's like where the conversation needs to be happening on a lot of these matters, because, you know, as I think just about my own life and my own limitations, like, what is it I'm called to do? Am I, because a lot, there's a lot of pressure over the last four years for pastors to weigh in on yeah, everything yeah. that comes up. And and Lord knows if you follow my Twitter, yeah. I'm, I'm willing to weigh in, but yeah. um, at the same time, you know, I need to, I want to be clear about what my responsibilities are, you know, as a pastor and, yeah. Um, you know, I sense this even when we, our church released a podcast on Israel and, you know, these kind of matters, eschatology, and we are trying to be very clear. We are not political theorists on geopolitics. We're not trying to provide a solution. Yep. We're trying to provide a biblical perspective so that you as a parishioner, as a congregant, as a Christian can at least think Christianly about yep. these yep. matters before getting captured by kind That's of right. statist impulses right. or bad theology that has shaped yeah. kind of how you get ramped up by things. So that's, that's where my, yeah, I, I would advise, like, like I've got an essay coming out and comment in the recent issue of comment for, on this. Can the church still speak? And if so, how, and how do we listen? But I, I go, I draw attention towards the end. I can't remember if they got, it got cut or not. Cause there's a lot of material, but Jackie Lul has inspired me a lot on this on, on how the church should and should not speak. Uh, I, I do think like he, he's very much against, and I am too, like constantly releasing like position papers, you know, or, Right. Just becoming like pamphleteers for a certain partisan uh, grouping. Uh, yeah. The pastors especially should not be expected to have like policy proposals for everything. Um, but you should be applying the word to at a more fundamental level to the 
the real human issues that people face. So people should know what your church thinks about gender. You know, right. again, we talked about the third way thing. If people don't know what you think about marriage, you're not being missional. You're just being cowardly. Um, right. You're not applying the whole counsel of scripture. Uh, and and uh, so obviously there's a lot of ways you can do that. And there's strategies for how you do that wisely and all of that. But it, that shouldn't be unclear. And that's like, I think we're in the century of anthropology. Like this, this century is the century of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be man and woman? What does it mean to be a child? What is it? What is life? We're in the century. So I think on those issues, the church, so Alul is really helpful because it's like, don't, you don't respond to the pressures of the world, the daily news cycle, and then respond with the categories of the world. You need to be responding long range with the categories of scripture. And that's going to touch everything. So what's the long yeah. range witness with the fundamental categories of scripture that really do break out of the the kind of partisan lens. So it's not just third way, but it's, it's just not, it's not caught up in the news cycle. It's not you're, you're, you're in, but you are providing distinctly Christian witness. Uh, and so I, I think he's really, really helpful in that. He has a book called the false presence of the kingdom uh, where he's talking because his first book related to that wasn't his first book overall, but called the presence of the kingdom. And he thought that people were misunderstanding him by kind of doing a naive Kyperian transformationalism, just like go and be involved with politics. He's like, no, it's actually not what I'm saying. You need to be, okay. it's more complicated than that. Uh, but I would, I would advise people to check that out. I think he's really helpful for how we can still address the wholeness of life in a public way, but as, as uniquely according to the word in scripture and, and being Christian. Excellent. Well, you've given us plenty to think about. I know I'm going to be chewing on this uh, for a long time to come. So thank you so much for spending time with me today, James, and talking about these matters. All right. Glad to be here. If uh, people want to keep reading, I'll, I'll try to I'll put a link to the Ad Fontes article. Um, is there any else anywhere else you would point people to to kind of keep up with you and the work you're doing where they can make sure they get that comment art, uh, article that's coming out soon? Yeah, you, uh, I'll send you the link because by the time this releases, it'll probably be live. I think uh, it's coming out November 20th, uh, the, the the issue. And so that that new issue uh, for with comment, I'll send a link there. But you can follow me on Twitter. I just post my mostly there to. Uh, post my articles and I, I don't get into as much trouble as I used to. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter, James R. Wood, Theo one. It's annoying that I have to add all those, but my name is a very common name. So, uh, so yeah, you can follow me there and uh, yeah. And you can look at my website on the Redeemer university page. Uh, but yeah, I'm around. That's great. All right, James, thanks so much for coming on the show today. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in today to Foolproof Theology with James Wood. I really enjoyed the conversation with him, and it helped me be a better pastor, be a better thinker on these matters, both historically and just for our, our day and age. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd love it if you'd give it a great review on uh, iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen. If you're on YouTube watching, uh, subscribe, uh, like, leave a comment, all that. And you can also sign up on the Patreon. The Patreon is a great way to uh, give me ideas for what you want to hear about. I prioritize listening to any Patreon supporter about uh, podcast content they want to hear a bit more about. So you can go sign up in the uh, notes for the episode down there. Uh, sign up at $5, you get a sticker. Sign up at 15 you get a mug. And I would love to have your support in that way. I need your support. So please sign up on the Patreon and we'll see you next time.